we were talking <coughs> about magic. And uh, just to be clear on what we're meaning, by magic, um, we simply mean the way things work. And so there is magic, there is deep magic, and what we're hearing about is a magic deeper still. And so as we think about that magic deeper still, it's kind of the key to uh, the whole story of, of Narnia. God so loved the world is really the theme of this whole series of talks together. In answer to the questions, why did Jesus come? <clears throat> why did Jesus die? Why was Jesus crucified? Why did he rise from the dead? Uh, the answer to all of those things is because God so loved the world. And we want to be moved by the love of God. Um, something that we know about intellectually or theologically, but we want to grasp that all of this, all of the incredible drama of the coming of Jesus, was simply because God loved the world, because God loves you, God loves me. And that's why all of this happened. But what we're wanting to do is understand something of what it was that happened. So we began with some very basic questions like, um, who was Jesus? So suppose we didn't know anything about him, and someone started talking about this character in history called Jesus, we would ask, well, who is that? And so we went back to some documents that we're sure are pretty credible. And those documents, called the Gospels, um, tell us the stories of what Jesus said and what Jesus did. And so then we're left sort of scratching our heads and wondering, so then well, what did he come to do? Because when we saw the, the stories that he told and when we heard the way he described himself, a lot of it seemed to be to critique religion. It seemed as though he came to say that the way religion was being practiced wasn't right. And so he took umbrage with the, the Pharisees and the scribes uh, and the, the, the legal experts of the day who told the people how to live. And you really needed to be one of them to interact with the ideas because they had thousands and thousands of laws they were pouring over the scriptures incessantly, day after day after day. And then they told you how to live. Well, this new rabbi came along, and he said, well, I, I know all of those things that they're talking about. But actually, if you want to know what it means to be a religious person, it's like this. And so in very basic terms and in real life terms, he described how to live as a person of faith, as a person of religion. And then he told stories about what the father was like. And much in contrast to the ideas that were taught by the Pharisees about what God is like, Jesus introduced God as a person who was full of grace and mercy and kindness and love and all of these things. And so having looked at those things, we thought, well then, is that the answer? That Jesus simply came to renovate religion, to tell them how to do religion better. And that's one of the reasons that he came. But if we were to put our pencils down then and say, okay, I think that's pretty much all we need to know, we may be drawn back to the stories of Jesus and hear him say some things that are quite curious, that go beyond the scope of just fixing religion, where he would say to them that he had come to die. And they might say, well, why? This is unnecessary. You, you're getting an audience. We agree that religion is dead and that it's overwhelming and that it's burdensome, so let's fix that. Let's start a movement. Let's get true religion. Let's revive it. But this, you coming here to die, we don't understand. 
And he would tell some stories that were just kind of mysterious. And we're left thinking, you know what? At the end of the day, we can't put our pencils down and say he came to fix religion. He came for something other than that, something far more than that. In fact, he came because of magic deeper still. So magic is the way things work. Deeper magic is magic that the witch knew. And at the end of her story, the cat was dead and deeper magic had been appealed to. And so his life was given for the traitor's life. And the queen at the end of that clip is shouting her victory that the cat is dead and Narnia is hers. But in the story, um, we hear from the pen of C.S. Lewis that if the witch had known a magic that was deeper than the magic from the beginning of time, she would have known something else that she didn't get. And we're going to explore that as the weeks press on, which is that according to the deeper magic, if there was a person, a willing sacrifice, who had committed no treachery and would give his life for the traitor, everything could be different and the deeper magic could come into play. So let me this morning just try to help us get into um, what it is that we know about this magic deeper still. So here's the, the passage that Dean read for us, and let me just unpack it a wee bit. Again, why did God come? God came because he wanted to die. Why did God become immortal? Because he couldn't die. And it, it, it stretches our minds, but we realize that the reason Jesus came wasn't just to fix religion. He came to die. Well, why did he come to die? Because he was God and God can't die. Well, the answer is Jesus came as a man because he needed to die. And boy, that's... Why could God just not have fixed it, right? Why could God not just have spoken from heaven and just avoided all of this inconvenience, to say the least, and just set things straight? Or, you know, why could he not um, just press farther on the ways that religion should be real and true and practical? Why did God have to die? Why did God have to become immortal? Why is that so important? And I think we might have kind of a first thought answer, and then we might go, no, wait a minute, that, I'm not quite sure how to answer that. So to answer it, in C.S. Lewis's language, we need to talk about the magic deeper still. So here's what is in that. Paul the Apostle says, who although he existed in the form of God. Now, um, in this passage, there are two words used, and there are two versions of the word form. One of them means the essential nature of a person, and the other means the appearance of a person. So the, the inner person, if you like, and the outer person. So if you were to translate it according to those words, here's what it would sound like. Who, although he existed as God through and through, so that's the one word, that in his inner essence he is thoroughly God. He did not equ regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And that word is the same word, which is fascinating, that just as surely as he was thoroughly God, he became thoroughly a servant. Paul doesn't use the word that means the outward appearance. He doesn't say, although he was God through and through, he came and looked like a servant. Although he was God through and through, he came as a servant through and through. 
Now that's what Paul wants to emphasize, but then he goes on forward and he says, and being made in the likeness of men, and here he uses the word that means appearance, so that when you met him, you didn't meet somebody who was not thoroughly God, you met somebody who as thoroughly God was thoroughly a servant and looked like a human, because something is going on. This being who is thoroughly God is now looking like one of us. And it again brings us to the question, well, why did he do that? Um, he was seen being made in the likeness of men. He humbled himself, being found in appearance as a man, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It's, it's still not answered for us, but Paul says, Here, here's what the truth is. The being that is God through and through incredibly became a servant through and through. So how do you figure that out? He made everything and everyone why did he become so thoroughly a servant as he was thoroughly God? And as that servant, why was it necessary for him to look like a human, to have human flesh, to become a mortal? And why, in fact, was it necessary for him to die? Because the reason he became mortal was so that he could die. And it's all because of the love of God and all because of what God is doing by his grace. So the writer to Hebrews goes a little bit farther and says, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. What, what's the point there? So the Hebrews writer is being pastoral. He's saying, when you come and pray to Jesus, this is the one you're praying to. So he, he says, he's your high priest. And when you pray to him, you don't talk then to somebody who doesn't have any idea what you're talking about. You talk to somebody who has been tested as you are in the flesh, as human, as mortal, in every way apart from sin. Now, the apart from sin is a very important phrase. And it's, it's a word that actually means devoid of sin. So if, if, if you want to argue, well, wait a minute, he, he can't truly have been human if he, if he didn't sin. So I guess he could have sinned and he didn't. Is that right? Or somebody might say, no, you, you couldn't say he, could, he couldn't sin. Well, if he couldn't sin, how can he feel what it's like to be tempted to sin? And we get in the little interesting coffee shop conversations. The strong point of theology here is that sin was not part of his humanity. So sin is not part, necessarily, of humanness. Sin is part of dying... But sin itself is not part of humanness. Jesus was fully human, but he didn't sin. But he felt what it feels like to be human. He was hungry. He got sad. He got angry. He was tired, thirsty. So when we come and talk to him and we say, here are the things that are just distracting me in my life, there is someone who's listening to us who says, I, I, know. I know. I know what it's like to be betrayed. I know what it's like to be in the darkest, darkest place of spiritual temptation and testing with the strength of my enemy in my face. I know all of those things. But the Hebrews writer says it's important to note again that this one who was thoroughly God became a thorough servant and was seen as a human being, was fully human, but he didn't sin. He didn't sin is the whole answer to the question, why did God have to become a mortal, and why did God have to come and die? So let's go a little bit farther with it. What happened at the start? So back in Genesis, 
God created humankind, and here's what he said to um, Adam and Eve in the garden, not in Hebrews, but in Genesis. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Why did God become immortal, and why did God have to die, so that we who are mortal and dying wouldn't have to die anymore? When they ate the fruit, and debate goes on as to whether, was that an actual event or is that a sort of symbolic event, it doesn't really matter. The point is that humankind resisted God and said, even though you tell us what's right and wrong, we're not going to pay attention to that. We will decide. And God said, well, you know the deal. And here we get into deeper magic. So that's that stratum, right? God says, here's the, here's the deeper magic. And Satan himself, personified as the queen, the wicked witch, knows this deeper magic. That if you resist me, you will die. You who are immortal, you who were created to not ever die, will start dying. And you will finally die. And the exploits of Satan from the very beginning were that he was the principal in this rebellion, right at the very start. He was an angel in heaven, and he said, I'm not so sure I want to just be told what to do by God. I want to be the one in charge. And so he mounts an insurrection against God, and he convinces others to join him, and God casts him out of heaven. And Satan then, who used to be Lucifer, begins on his incredible, incredible time lasting mutiny against God, and he tries to bring all of humanity down with him. So he first of all goes after them and says, did God really tell you what to do? I encourage you not to pay attention to that. You decide for yourselves. You're like God. You can think like he can think. You can choose like he can choose. You can decide things like he decides and get them done. So I encourage you to pay no attention to what God said to you. You will not die. Well, they did die. They didn't die that day, but they died one day. And they, as human beings, had not been created to die. It is not intended that we should be dying beings. It is not intended that we should be living in a world that is a dying world. But when we get to Psalms, there are probably six or seven repetitions of this indictment that God brings. And then Paul brings it up in Romans as well. So here's what God says when he looks at us. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There's no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand any who seek God, all have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There's not one who does good, not even one. So how do you feel about yourself this morning? Do you want to say, oh, there's one, please, can there be one? So no, God's indictment is that all of us have fallen to the wiles, to the exploits, to the temptations of Satan which are essentially to say no to God and yes to ourselves. Now, it, it comes out in all kinds of, of uh, fashions and, and events and decisions and, and situations. But God looks on and he says, this is what it's like. Now, I, I want to talk to you about a word 
that we don't often go to in talking about the, the Christian faith and gospel. The word is corruption. I was reintroduced re to a, a person that I read years ago by a book that Kevin gave me. Uh, the person's Athanasius, and I doubt that any of you, if you've not read Narnia, you probably haven't read Athanasius. Cause, so Athanasius was, was born around the turn of the fourth century, and he is one of the heroes of the Christian faith. Before he was 20 years old, he wrote a book called On the Incarnation. And here's, here's the, the irony. If you have Kobo or Kindle, you can buy that for less than a dollar. And I promise you, it is the most insightful book on human nature, sin, and salvation that you'll ever read. Save your tens of hundreds of dollars. Go online and buy On the Incarnation by Athanasius. His uh, rival was a guy called Arian, and uh, church councils aplenty met to debate the difference between what they believed as to who Jesus was and what it means that he came in the flesh. Did he come in real flesh? Athanasian said yes. Arian said no, he just looked like a man. And today, there is Arianism all around us. So if the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, if the Mormons come to your door, if Muslims come to your door, they are Arian in some respect in that they do not believe that Jesus really became a human, that he became a real human. Athanasius, as a 20-year-old, is saying you have to stake your claim on the real humanness of Jesus. But Athanasius does a lot of work with the word corruption. And I want to take you there today because for me, it finally gets at to the magic deeper still about, yeah, but why did he have to die? And why was it important that he was thoroughly a human and that he had no sin or didn't sin, couldn't sin, wouldn't sin, all of those things? Athanasius says, um, the incarnation is the most glorious thing that has ever taken place or ever will. And in the incarnation, what Athanasius helps us understand is that Jesus came not only to fix our sinning, but he came to fix our corruption. And he says, here's God, and God has a dilemma on his hands because he has made humankind, and he longs for them to be all that he created them to be, but they have fallen. And God has made a law that is intrinsic in the magic of the universe, time and space, that if you rebel against God, you die. So Athanasius says, if it were enough to stop us sinning, then Jesus just could have come and been the good sacrifice maybe, or the great teacher, and we would have all said, we're sorry, we will now live righteous lives. But he points out that that's not the only problem we have. The fundamental problem that we have is that we are destined to corruption, and it can't be fixed. You can't fix it by moral living or by ethical living. You can't fix it by saying, I'm sorry. Something has to happen that gets into the stuff and deals with the corruption. So I don't know how to parallel that. Is, is it like cancer and saying you can cut out the, the, the tumor, but you're still left with a condition called cancer or uh, or is it, you know, the corruption that we see like when rust gets into something and you can paint over the rust, right? It's a story about the Queen Mary that um, when they began to uh, sand down some of the great funnels, um, 
they kept on sanding and they got to the point that there was nothing left. They sanded it down to nothing. There was nothing underneath. They had covered it up so many times, but inside it was rotting. And only when they cut away all of the cover-up did they discover that there was nothing left, no metal left there. Our problem is corruption. And it can't be fixed. It can't be fixed by religion. And the evidence of corruption is our dying. And the world that we are in is corrupt as well, in all of its systems. And I don't know how long we want to keep our heads buried in the sand about the fact that this world and its systems is absolutely broken and beyond being able to be fixed. Is that right or not? I mean, what have we tried? We've tried economics, we've tried politics, we've tried religion, we've tried you know, just being good, being caring, trying to, we've tried all those things and are we better? Or do we dread watching the news one more time? So what is that? It's corruption. It's dying. Things are still dying. I think one of the witnesses that God has left to us by his grace is the witness of seasons. Because in the seasons, we see the dying, but we see the hope of resurrection, right? So year after year, we see creation die again. And we say, oh, but then creation comes back to life. And what was happening in the whole system of sacrifices and religion was that seasonal dying and reliving. So we were sinful, we did bad things, we were bad people. And so once a year or more, we could go to church and we could give an offering, make a sacrifice, and it would be covered over. But remember what we saw last week? Sacrifices and offering you didn't want. When I came into the world, you gave me a body. And that body that was mortal, thoroughly human, without sin, was the only satisfaction to God's great dilemma about our fall. We could keep on saying we're sorry. We could keep on doing the sacrifices, but we would still be subject to corruption. We would still be dying. And I have to tell you, I'm just sick of dying, right? Another funeral yesterday, and you just, I'm tired of dying. I'm tired of the process of dying that comes via aging, but far more than that, to see one more person just leave this life and die is just, there's something in all of us that says, what? There's some, that's not right. I've told you before, when I was a young pastor, I had to fight the urge to try to raise people from the dead. I literally walked up to coffins and thought, maybe this is the time one of them will come to life. It'd be something else, wouldn't it? I would not be here. I'd be on world tour flying in my Learjet and just hauling, telling people all over that I raised a person from the dead. But you know what that was? That was youthful denial that said, there's something wrong with death. But it's the dying that we're dealing with, not death, the condition, the corruption that we're destined to. So here is God's dilemma. I have created a beautiful creation and people in my image but they have rebelled against me. And what can I do? And in God's mind, in God's genius, in the deep theology of pre-dawn in creation, God the Trinity fixed it in their mind 
And Jesus came and he did something that the queen had no notion about because she only knew deep magic, not the magic deeper still. That God determined that if a willing victim who had created no sin would give his life for the ones who had created treachery, who had committed treachery, everything could be wiped clean and God could turn things back to what he started with, which is people who would no longer die. So Jesus, when some sisters had a brother who died, he tested it out on them. He, he, they said, if you had been here, he would not have died. And Jesus said, um, I'm the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, even if you die, you will live again. Do you believe this? Yeah, but right now there's the dying. Lazarus is dead. And here we are, and Lazarus is dead. But Jesus is saying, I'm the resurrection and the life. And you say, how could you be the resurrection and the life? Because he came as one of us. He owned his part with us. And the law of sin came towards him and then was recoiled because the law of sin said, wait, it doesn't apply here. The law of sin, the law of futility, the law of corruption is for those who have fallen and this human has not. So this human, if he dies, he can die a death that puts an end to the law of death. And he can bring every single other person along with him into the kingdom of the Father and say they have been set free from the law of sin and death, from corruption. And I believe in eternal life. I believe that when I stop breathing here, I will start breathing and I will never stop again because God loves the world so much. When I think about it, it's, it's sort, of, sort of like this, that there is this lovely creation that God brought into existence. But then into that creation came the awful fall of humankind. And only by the incarnation can God get what he wants, which is creation back again, rid of the fall, and therefore not subject to corruption. So the queen, well, she only knew the magic that goes in here. And she said, so you know that that boy's life is mine. Okay, you're going to give me the cat instead of the boy? That's all right. We can do that. But the text tells us that she, if she had only known the magic deeper still, she would have known that there's another way. Watch this. And that way is like this. What do you see here? A cross. Yeah, you do, don't you? <laughs> because God loved the world so much. But see, it's the corruption thing. It's not about getting better or being better or doing better. It's about saying, we're done. We're finished. Death has won. The deep magic declares that in the magic of this place, death wins until Jesus steps forward and says, here I am. It's not about sacrifices or offerings. I have a body, but it's a sinless body. I am one of you. I will join you. I will take the hit. And in God's economy, that works. 
Now, we're, we're going to next week have a, a look at the question, well, how does it work? I mean, what is it that the death of Jesus does or did? And I think a lot of times we've been too fixated on our individual guilt and salvation. That's, that's all important. But we haven't gone to the extent of saying, yeah, but it's, it's, it's all of us. It's we. We are subject to corruption, and it can't be fixed. Can't be fixed by individual salvation or by individual improvement. Corruption has been sentenced upon all of us, and it stinks. It's, it's now a law that we see that everything deteriorates and deteriorates and deteriorates. It doesn't ever get better. And it is, it is reminded to us by the very cycles of life that we, have, we live and we die, and we live and we die. A baby's born, but a grandfather dies. Nature tells us, and we go, so is it possible that for us there is a cycle that, that finally yields life again? No, because corruption rules, except for the magic deeper still, when Jesus' sacrifice was enough. It's done. So on the cross, he said, it's finished. And man, that was not just a simple statement. It was not, yep, I'm pretty much done here. Life's over. It wasn't even, I've, I've finished what I came to do. It was like, it's finished. Corruption's done. There's going to be no more rotting in Graves, cemeteries, there's going to be no more just a memory of a person. There's going to be life, 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 life abundant. When Lewis talks about the life that we were entering, we will enter into, he says it's like colors are more vivid than they are here. Things weigh more than they do here. Everything is just heavier. It's a, it's a heavier, glorious, blissful existence. And I'm just here to tell you, if, if Jesus only came to fix religion, that's boring compared to the fact that he came to fix corruption. He came to fix the rottingness of us. And the queen didn't know. She didn't know. And on the third day when he rose, he had no idea what hit him. Because the deeper magic told him that he had now won the game. And Jesus said, you haven't even thought of what's truly happened. Athanasius has an interesting idea that what we're destined for is nothingness. That death, just by definition, is the ending of things. So he's gotten himself in trouble. Um, he's not worried so much about is there hell and fire and all of that. He's just saying, if you do not have the life of God, you don't have life. So he says what God is doing is making sure that what he brought into being doesn't cease being by the end of corruption, which is the nothingness of failure. You can do with that whatever you like. You can argue with that. You can turn me in for that because I'd lose my license if somebody knew that I was saying such things. But it's, it's important to just get at the fact that corruption has been dealt with. And the, the other result is unthinkable that death has its way or that Satan has his way. It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable that God would lose what he intended to gain. Unthinkable. So today we're going to join in receiving the bread and cup, which are our saying, oh yes, I believe that. The bread represents this body that Jesus came to live in that was without sin. 
and the cup represents the blood that he shed. That was the last time any blood had to be shed because it finally paid the deal. Um, it blindsided Satan. It gave God his proper due, and it rid us from corruption. So that ought to matter tomorrow when I go to work or Tuesday in school because everything's different.